The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Bina Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, your national, your nation's public radio source. Don't want to use that registered trademark there for all the news information, advice, and techniques you need to make your very first real estate investment or grow your successful real estate investing business. The Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati has its first meeting for the month of February tomorrow evening. The topic is a very interesting one. It is how to slash your rehab costs by 20 to 70% with Mr. Pete Youngs, who was a guest here on the show last week and uh, whose uh, presentation I saw last night at... Uh, Central Ohio Real Estate Entrepreneurs in Columbus. Um, good stuff. He's a, he actually does like videos showing how to do the inexpensive rehabs that he's doing and so on. So if you are in the rehab business, if you're a landlord looking to save money on turnover expenses, you probably want to be there. It is guest night, which means anyone can attend at no charge. And there are also, I understand, going to be prizes for folks who bring guests with them. You can get more information about that at CincinnatiRIA.com. That's Cincinnati, R-E-I-A dot com. And uh, we hope to see you there tomorrow evening. Our topic today is one that we've had many, 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 many requests to cover uh, ever since the Dodd-Frank Act first reared its ugly head a few years back throughout the process of uh, the regulators hammering out what that was actually going to look like. And then, of course, even more so in the last month as it actually finally took effect in January of 2014, the Dodd-Frank Act has had a lot of investors very, very nervous because... Uh, you're just not going to sit down and read all thousand pages of it, uh, just as Congress didn't before it was passed. And now there's a lot of folks out there who understand that there's something different they ought to be doing in their creative transactions, but they're not sure what that is. So the reason that we have not uh, gotten into it deeply here on Real Life Real Estate was a simple lack of an expert who really had had taken a close look at it from the perspective of the small real estate investor and could explain it without 
uh, either making it sound too rosy or scaring the pants off all of you listeners and making you think you couldn't do real estate anymore because because the government said no. My guest today is Jeff Watson. He is an attorney from the uh, I'm going to say Ashtabula because I can't pronounce the actual city up there uh, where he's from. He has been landlording and re and uh, and uh, acting as a real estate investor since 1993. He has rehabbed, bought and sold creatively. He's got rental properties, apartment buildings. He's also a practicing attorney and best known as probably the the, the nation's biggest authority on the area of the legal part of short sale transactions and disclosures. He's uh, done it himself. He teaches other people to do it. And we are really glad to have him here today to help us understand the Dodd-Frank Act. Jeff, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be with you. Uh, It is a pleasure to have you as, um, again, there is a lot of confusion out there about this. I, can't, I couldn't imagine <laughs> why. <laughs> yes, and and and, le- and 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 as with everything, you know, we've had waves of of new stuff happening as as time has passed and oh look, now they're doing this and that's going to mean this. Oh no, it's not. Uh, it means this other thing. Oh, so so finally, finally we have the final the final version of it or at least the 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 temporarily final version of it. It is in effect and it does affect a lot of folks who are doing what we do and we need to we need to let them know what it is now that they have to do so um let, let, let's start by just sort of talking about the the regulatory environment in general because you know you've been in real estate for many years i've been in real estate for many years i have never seen the volume of regulation coming out of washington that we've had in the last five or six years that affects us as small real estate investors. So we had the SAFE Act, and then right after that, we had the Dodd-Frank Act. What are these things, what what was the intention of them? Well, the intention is often very different than the impact or the result. The intention was to try and make it to where we wouldn't have loans being given by banks that shouldn't be in business and lending money to people who shouldn't be borrowing them, who can't afford them, pay them back, and have terms in the loans that will make it impossible to pay them back. That is the big, rosy picture that we see behind it. Because if you look at the particular section of the Dodd-Frank Act that I have up on my screen right now, because I know what we're going to be talking about, it's called the Mortgage Reform and Anti-Predatory Lending Act. And I don't know anybody that's in favor of predatory lending. Okay? I haven't found anybody yet who could tell me that they support predatory lending. But boy, we're going to we're everybody's going to be against it. But it's kind of like that other thing out there which well how do you define predatory lending? And you know, they've gone out and they've defined predatory lending and they've got they've kind of got some ideas and I got to tell you some of what they're doing I completely agree with. Some of what they're doing I think is completely insane. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this comment. Um, the, this act, you know, whether you want to call it its full name or you want to refer to it by its proper legal citation or whether you want to just call it Dodd-Frank, which everybody usually calls it, this act's here to stay. This is one of the two 
signature pieces of legislation from our current commander-in-chief, President of the United States of America. And there's no way that he wants to see this thing changed, amended, revoked, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's here to stay. Mm-hmm. But as you and I talk more, we'll get into um, where there is still some flux and variance in the system, and there's still a lot of rules that have not yet been written, Vina. Mm-hmm. Yes, I attended a... Uh a a little one-day conference last spring of a bunch of uh, local and national banks discussing low-income housing and and how they could perhaps make more loans to low-income homeowners. And uh, the the one clear thing that that came out of that conference from, from banker after banker after banker after banker is Dodd-Frank scares the heck out of us there's you know 120 rules and only 17 of them have been have been written and we're afraid of violating the other 103 without knowing what they are and so we, that that is one of the reasons that we are being very conservative about the kind of loans that we make we've got we've got downtown office buildings with entire floors full of attorneys trying to <laughs> figure this out yeah. and 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 we don't we don't even know what it's what it's going to what it's going to say yet and so until we do know uh, there's not going to be much changing in in our business now. The funny thing is, it was their business that really caused a, a, a or, or let me let me. I don't. I'm not, I'm not going to say caused because I believe it was greed at every level from the home buyer to Wall Street that caused the mortgage meltdown. But it was uh, uh, they they were able to help along the mortgage crisis. Um, and yet this law that was passed to regulate the big actors is at, is regulating the little actors who don't have a floor full of attorneys to help them figure it out. And that's that's who we're really talking to today is you listeners, because unfortunately, this huge omnibus bill has uh, changed the way you need to do business in certain kinds of deals. We're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about who who this affects, how it affects them. And we're also going to take your questions. And folks, today is the day to call with your Dodd-Frank questions, not next month when I don't have Jeff on the line. 877-772-9658 is our toll-free number. You can also send us an email. What you do is you go to our website at askvena.com. That's A-S-K-V-E-N-A.com. Um, click the send Vina a question button, enter, enter your question into the form, and we'll get it here by email. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is attorney Jeff Watson. How do you pronounce Coniot, by the way? <clears throat> I pronounce it Coniot. Coniot, okay. And that's where Jeff's from. Coniot. It's up in northern Ohio. It's, it's near Cleveland. Everything yep. up there is near Cleveland, right? I'm an hour and 15 minutes east of Cleveland. <laughs> right. We are as far north and east as you can go and stay in the state of Ohio. Mm, okay, okay. Any further north and you get wet in Lake Erie, any further east and we're in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So there's there's your lesson in where Conneaut, Ohio is, ladies and gentlemen. But he's a nationally known expert in real estate investing and particularly Things like asset protection, IRA investing, and short sales. We're talking today, though, about the Dodd Frank Act. Um, so, so Jeff, let's let's bring it bring it down to the level of our our real estate investor listener. I you know I say small real estate investor. Of course, what I mean is, you know, most of us don't have. We're not you know we're not 
colony. We're, we don't, we're not Blackstone. We don't have tens of thousands of properties scattered all over the world. But the ones that we have are very important to us, and we would like to keep them. So, right. Well, <clears throat> let me, let me, I'll, I'll do that. I'll, I'll bring it down, and I'll tell you and how I bring it down is I'll tell you how it mattered to me. Um, I wanted to just kind of ignore this new era of Dodd-Frank. And as I heard the rumblings last November, last December about what it was going to be and, you know, what were people asking questions, I just wanted to play ignorant. I even told people I haven't read it, okay, because I hadn't read it yet. But when I started to hear what it involved and I knew it started impacting my business, what I want to do, and it impacts what my clients want to do, both in and outside of their self-directed retirement accounts, I knew I had to learn this thing. And then I realized that what Dodd-Frank has done is it's drawn a line, and it says that if you are really, really small, and if you are going to sell one house a year, these rules apply to you. If you're going to sell it under certain terms and circumstances, and I want to explain those terms and circumstances. And then they give you this little narrow wedge of if you only do three houses in a rolling 12-month period. And the moment you go beyond that third house in a rolling 12-month period, well, you're just like a small community bank, and we're going to regulate you like that. We're going to regulate you as if you've got <clears throat> a couple billion dollars of assets on deposit. And I'm just, I, I, I read it, and I freaked out. <laughs> I said, this can't be. Mm-hmm. This is ridiculous. You know, this is nuts. And then I read it again, and I realized it wasn't – it was there. And it was, it was like, okay, now how do we deal with this? So, mm-hmm. so that's who it applies to. It applies to anybody who, as part of their business, who is part of an effort to make money. Let me say that again. In an effort to make money, you're selling three or more houses a year where you are doing some sort of owner financing to the end occupant buyer, okay? Mm -hmm. Let me make, we're very clear about this. It is for when people are using the house as their home, as their primary residence, okay? Mm -hmm. So, Vina, you can make 99 hard money loans to rehabbers, and Dodd-Frank doesn't apply to you, okay? Mm Mm-hmm. You make four loans to people who are going to live in them with their wife, children, family, cats, dogs, pets, and so on, whether or not they're bringing the goldfish. And now you've got to comply with all of the rules and requirements of Dodd-Frank. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it, it, can, it can get you, even if you consider yourself too small to be of any interest to this 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 law that was meant to you know stop predatory loans and so on right and the when you say owner finance uh there's there's a lot of there's a lot of forms of that i mean i'm sure people are out there thinking well so so i understand if i sell a property to a homeowner and i carry back a mortgage that counts what about if i sell it on a land contract they don't actually get the deed does that count yes what if I it's, what if I sell it on a lease option? Does that count? Oh, that's a question that I'll answer two ways. I'll give you the lawyer answer on that one. But instead of instead of calling seller finance, what we really need to look at here is is there some sort of extension of credit? Mm-hmm. Is this buyer paying you over time, irrespective of whether you lent them any money or not? 
Because, you know, if, you're, if you own the house and you own the house free and clear and you go ahead and sell it on terms to somebody else, you're not giving them a check at closing. They're just signing a promissory note at closing. But you're still extending credit to them, and that's what they look at. Are you extending credit as part of what looks like a regular business activity designed to make money? Now, how do they define a regular business activity? Are you doing it consistently? Does it look habitual? And is it designed to make a profit? Mm -hmm. Okay, so you could say to me, well, Jeff, I really, you know, if you're selling it to lose money, that's (laughs) one way of doing seller finance. (laughs) <laughs> that you may not then run afoul of Dodd-Frank, but you've got to be losing money. Of course, then you're going to go broke. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you have to be able to prove that you intended to lose money as well, apparently. It wasn't just an accident. Uh, there you go, exactly, because you know how it is. You know, what can I say? I, you know, banks can lose money and still make money. I don't know how to explain it, but anyhow. So, so transaction where there is a, a transactions where there are living dwellings involved, and, 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 and by the way... Primary for, residences, primary <laughs> residences. Not a vacation home, not a second home, but a primary residence. And, and, and that does, by the way, include uh, mobile homes for folks who are fans of those and are thinking, well, thank goodness this doesn't apply to me. He said houses. <laughs> oh, mobile, and this is, mobile homes, and too. And this is what caused me to beat my head because this is the area that I am now playing in because of some investments that my mom's self-directed retirement account has made. I wanted to, do some, I wanted to make a lot more mobile home financing happen. And Dodd-Frank just was a, is a roadblock right in the way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so so key things. The buyer is a homeowner. You as the seller are extending some sort of credit, be that uh, anything from a, an owner carryback mortgage to uh, even, a, even a second mortgage, uh, land contracts, potentially lease options. And I, you're not the first person who, when I asked that question, said, well... <laughs> It doesn't specifically well, say that, but <laughs> but do you want to get into it now or do you want to save it? Well, let's 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 do it. Okay, a lease option. You, Vina, you and I know right now. Time time is a this is a crazy time in real estate where actually people can, if they could actually get credit and buy borrow money to go buy a house, their house payment may be lower than their lease payment for the same property. Mm-hmm. Okay, we see that in a lot of different markets. Sometimes it's the reverse, but right now a lot of I've seen a lot of ads. Where, you know, now it makes sense to buy because your rent's so high and so on. So what you have to look at is if it looks like financing in disguise. So if the lease payment is not based upon fair market rent, but instead it looks like a twenty or thirty year amortization of what what's like what looks like the current sale value of the property, then it's not a true lease option. But if it's Fair market rent on a clear written instrument documenting that it's a lease and the buyer has an option to buy it at some point in time and they're paying money separate and distinct from their rent that may go to the option and it may be just a one-time option deposit at the beginning and that's it, then that's a true lease option and that doesn't fall under the seller finance. But if you're going to do it like so many of us have done it, and I'm going to raise my hand because I've done this, I'll sell it on a lease option, and I'll, you know, part of every month's rent payment goes towards the purchase price. That's going to fall under Dodd Frank. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at that point, there's a there's a question of it looks like a lease option. It says it's a lease option, but is it really a lease option? <laughs> it's really trying to get him to buy the house. Right. Right. 
Okay, so we know we know what sort of transactions are affected. You've already told us that uh, if we're going to do more than three a year, we got to pay very careful attention to what's coming next, which is what are the rules that we have to follow? Because the law doesn't say you can't do it. Correct. The law doesn't say you can't do it. The law says that if you do it, you have to do something very different. Okay. And so we've got it. We've got this thing now to where the first question I got to ask you is: Are you only going to do one seller carryback or one extension of credit transaction to a residential buyer a year or not? Because if you're only going to do one, then you're allowed to do things differently with that one than if you were going to do two or three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, Vina, do you know how many you're going to do in the next year? It, it all depends now, doesn't it? <laughs> Go look in your magic crystal ball and tell me how many you're going to do. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, so let's just assume that you're only going to do one, okay? Mm-hmm. That note can be written differently, okay? So that note can actually have a balloon payment in it, okay? Mm-hmm. And it must have a fixed interest rate for five years, and then the interest rate can adjust. Mm-hmm. It can adjust up as much as two percentage points. Now, I just can't do that arbitrarily. You know, on the 61st month, the interest rate just went up 2%. No, it can't do that. It's got to be based off of some rational index. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the third thing, and this is absolutely crucial, you must be able to prove and document the buyer's ability to repay Mm -hmm. that loan in accordance with certain underwriting standards. Now, I'm going to tell you, they want you to take a snapshot in time and go, okay, if this guy keeps driving this truck and making this kind of paycheck, can he afford to make this house payment, principal, interest, taxes, and insurance? Mm-hmm. So you're going to want to look at W-2s, several pay stubs, a tax return, things like that to say, does they ha- do they have the income? You know, not do they have the money in the bank, but do they have the income mm-hmm. to be able to make these payments, P-I-T-I. And this has been a huge area of controversy, even amongst folks who have studied the law and do understand it, because... The definition of affordability is not there. <laughs> and, well, I mean, we, we all know that in our part of the country, you know, here, here in flyover country, it's very common for people to, to earn, you know, five to six times what their PITI payments are per month. It's just we have very affordable housing, right? And we have, you know, fo- folks who um, we're, we're way up on the affordability index. But, but out in California for instance, uh, it's not unusual for people to be buying houses that, that, are, that are 40 to 51% of their income every month goes to their payments, right? And this isn't clearly defined in law. You know, okay, so you're supposed, to make, you're supposed to make an effort to make sure they can afford it. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, you see, it goes back to you. Ha- and I'm going to read this, and I'm going to reference back to the text almost, Okay. You have to document that a buyer's ability to repay in accordance with qualified mortgage rules. Now, we really don't know what all the qualified mortgage rules are yet. They're starting to come into place. They're almost all there, but we're still not sure. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's almost certainly going to end up uh, including some things that, that in the past, folks who've done lease options, land contracts as a, as a part of their business have not looked at very closely, which is, which is things like debt to income ratios. Because it's it's yeah. one it's one thing to say, well, this guy makes three thousand dollars a month. The payment's only seven fifty. He clearly qualifies, and it's a different thing to say, what are his credit card bills? What's his truck payment? Does he have a student loan? Does he have child support? You know, we 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 have never in our business gotten as sophisticated in the underwriting as a bank does, and it looks like we're about to have to. Yep, it looks like we're about to have to. Because we're going to have to make sure that we have documented that ability to pay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to try. I'm going to. I'm going to look at this thing, and I want to make. Oh, oh. There's one other thing I forgot to tell you regarding the loan that you do. Mm-hmm. It's got to be a fully amortizing loan. It can't be an interest-only thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you can't do fixed. You can't do teaser rates. You can't do interest-only. You can do a balloon. Remember, we're back in the world. You're only doing one of these a year. Your crystal ball says you're only going to do one, okay? Mm-hmm. So you can put a balloon in that one, mm-hmm. okay? If you're going to do two or more, you can't do a balloon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. Well, let's take a break, and when we come back, we will talk about what happens to folks who are in the up to three range and then what happens over three. And we're also going to take calls and answer some of the many emails I'm receiving uh, from listeners. You can give us a call, listeners, at 877-772-9658, or you can uh, send us an email. The way you do that is you go to the website, askvina.com. Fill in the response form, hit the send button, and it'll come here by email. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Talking today to Jeff Watson about the Dodd-Frank Act and what it means to all of us who are selling properties uh, on land contracts, contracts for deed, seller carryback mortgages, and maybe even certain kinds of lease options if you're um, doing things like rent credits that are going to be interpreted as principal payments when somebody takes a close look at the uh, the the deal you've made. Um, so, so Jeff, we talked about if I'm only going to do one this year, I can do it one way. Now, I, I think what you were what you were trying to point out in your subtle way was if you think you're going to do one, you do it that way, and then there ends up being a second one. You broke the law by doing the first one the way you did it. <laughs> because no, 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 no. I didn't. Not that. If if you did the first one, okay, when you do your first one, two things happen, okay? When you do your first type of seller, seller finance transaction, two things happen. Number one, the clock starts ticking. The 12-month or year-long clock starts to tick then. Mm-hmm. Secondly, that means the next two or three, the next two deals that you do or the next one or two deals that you do have to be different than the first one mm-hmm. because only in the first one can you have a balloon. Okay. In the second and third one, you can't have a balloon. Okay, so let's so 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 we've moved now from number one in a twelve month period. Right. We've, we've we like that so well <laughs> that we decided to go do it again. The next one can't have a balloon. What else is different in the second and third ones? That's the biggest difference: is that they can't have a balloon. Okay. What the, the other things that are constant are? You have to document. Not only verify, but document. And document is a very interesting word. It means you've got to keep copies of the proof, okay, mm-hmm. that they have the ability to repay. 
P-I-T-I. Mm-hmm. You can't jack the rate on them. It's got to be fully amortizing, and the rate has to stay fixed for five years before it can move up, up to 2% increase, but that 2% increase has got to be justified off of an index of some sort or another. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now we get to number four, and now we're apparently big-time investors worthy of we are now worthy of some serious regulation because at number four we fall into the same category as community banks so at, at number four what happens well at number four you have four choices okay stop don't do it that's one of your choices second one of your choices is stall until 366 days have gone by since you did your first one. Mm-hmm. Okay? The third choice is you're going to break the law. The fourth choice is you're going to get a licensed mortgage loan originator to handle it all for you. And you're going to pay anywhere from 1500 to 2100 bucks for that for that to be done. Mhm. Mhm. Which is a lot on for for folks who are selling properties in, you know, Ashtabula, Ohio, that the entire sale price is forty five hundred bucks, and the down payment might be twelve hundred. And exactly, I can see I can see scenario after scenario where my costs as a lender vastly exceed what I'm going to get in for the first six eight months of the life of the loan. Mm-hmm. You know. Now, this brings me to, this brings me, and I got, if you permit me, Vina, I'm going to get on my little soapbox for just 15 seconds, mm-hmm. okay? The unintended consequences of Dodd-Frank have been to result in regulatory redlining by the federal government and its agencies to where low-income borrowers, people who want to borrow $75,000 on down, are being pushed out of the market. No one can afford to do those loans. The banks can't do them. The credit unions can't do them. They're too cost prohibitive. And they're not letting the private small market guy come in and try and fill the gap. Mm-hmm. I call it regulatory redlining. It's an unintended consequence of Dodd-Frank. And, and I would agree with that because I know there are a lot of folks out there who have houses uh, here in the Cincinnati area that are are falling in that sometimes way under $75,000 range. I mean, we have we have neighborhoods yeah. here where uh, a fixed up house in in great shape that a the homeowner could could live in for the next 10 years and not have to do anything other than minor repairs is still only a $50,000 house. And that homeowner honestly has a hard time bringing $2,500 to the closing as a down payment and if that's all going to go away in paying a mortgage originator, why would I sell that house that way right i'm going to continue to rent it i might lease option it which is is actually not as good for the buyer as getting no, it's not as getting a land contract or a mortgage and uh yes i mean it it, it constantly um it keeps it keeps coming back to me over and over and over again that the the congress could not possibly have intended to regulate people who are seriously only selling four houses a year we're only making four loans a year, and yet that's what the law says, so here we are. So let's talk about uh, your option number three, which is violate the law. What happens if you do that? Yeah. <laughs> okay, 
well, now, now I have to be very clear. I am not recommending, I am not advocating that anyone violate this law. And I'm going to tell you why. First of all, I could not in good conscience recommend that. Secondly, because if you get caught, it will be brutally painful. You will probably not get caught by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. You will probably get caught by a disgruntled tenant buyer, a disgruntled buyer who goes to a sophisticated ambulance-chasing attorney who has read the code and says, oh, you mean they got to give back everything they've been paid, they've paid over the last three years, and I get reasonable attorney's fees? And you can just hear them salivating. Mm -hmm. And that's what's going to happen if you get caught. Now, I can imagine if you get caught more than once, you probably ought to start checking out to see what size orange you wear or, you know, the, the club fed style, okay? <laughs> but the real problem is the first time around, it's just going to be absolutely financially brutal because you're going to have to shell out three, month, three years' worth of payments that you collected on that deal and reasonable attorney's fees. And I can't imagine a reasonable attorney's fee that's going to come in less than fifty or sixty thousand dollars on a fifty thousand dollar house, because I mean these guys are going to be billing at four hundred bucks an hour, mm-hmm. and they got to read all of Dodd Frank. They've got to go read eleven hundred pages. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. And and what? Uh, so 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 that's really you know not an option for anybody. That's you know, just, just, don't don't do that. The licensed mortgage originator uh, concept is one that we actually first heard back when the SAFE Act was coming around, which seemed really scary until we saw Dodd Frank, right? The SAFE, yeah. the, the, the SAFE Act was, you know, was was the the 800 pound gorilla, and then along came Godzilla. Uh, let, let's let's talk a little bit about that that licensed mortgage originator and what it is they do for you in the transaction. What is what is it that's costing you twenty five hundred dollars? What are they doing that's different than what you would have done anyway? They are going to make sure that all of the communication with the prospective borrower is in conformity with all of the Dodd Frank rules and regulations that no one knows what they are yet. They're going to make sure that all of the type, size, font, spacing, and terminology on all of the loan documents is completely accurate. They're going to make sure that both the interest rate and the APR are properly calculated. They're going to make sure that all of these documents arrive at the closing table at the right time. And then you might have them as a liability protection or fallback, provided they're still in business three years later if something goes wrong and your your borrower defaults and you try to foreclose. Mm-hmm. So that's not a really exciting, it's, a, it's, a, it's the best opportunity there is right now, but it's not an exciting long-term strategy. <laughs> okay? I'm gonna, I'll share with you, if we've got time, either at this segment or the next one, about what I think is one of our better long-term strategies. Okay. Okay? But um, right now, we've got to come to grips with this is the reality that it is, And we've got to use this as a way of saying, hey, maybe it's time to wake up and pay attention to all of the massive amounts of regulation that have been coming at us for the last decade or more. And we need to start becoming aware of and vocal with what we're doing, because we provide valuable goods and services to a community. We help people have safe, affordable, clean housing 
when few other people can. And those are things to be proud of, and those are things to be aware of that those rights are sometimes being taken away inadvertently by overzealous regulators that are trying to crack the walnut with a sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. Very, very true. And ladies and gentlemen, that means the next time that your real estate association puts something in front of you and says, call your congressman, write a letter, pay attention to this, do something, that you need to do it. Because uh, although on this particular bill, there was a lot of uh, legislative activity going on at the uh, level of uh, the state real estate associations, uh, uh, Jeff's uh, uh, organization that he runs and so on. It was not enough, clearly. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will get to your questions at 877-772-9658 or via our website at askvina.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is Jeff Watson. He's an attorney and investor and nationally known expert on investor-related legal stuff. And uh, we are talking about the Dodd-Frank Act. And man, are we getting a lot of questions about this, Jeff. So uh, when Mike gives me the we've got five minutes left signal, we're going to go back to what you wanted to say about what the best options are for folks. But I want to get through some of these questions. We've got one here from Bill who says, uh, how are the feds going to enforce this? Buyers calling 911, help someone sold me a land contract or how? Who enforces it? The feds, the state attorney general, local prosecutor, ambulance chasers, super guest, super show, thanks. The answer is it's going to be complaint driven, complaint driven. So that means that the borrower who feels slighted or offended is going to be the number one source of generating that complaint. And they can do it by contacting their state attorney general. They can contact the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. They could go to their local ambulance chasing lawyer, any of those ways. But the primary thing is going to be Mm -hmm. complaint-driven. Okay, this is a question from Angel in Seattle who says, uh, and and this this is a fairly common sort of, you know, again, uh, who, who does this affect? If more than one seller sells me their home with seller financing, it's one transaction for them, but it's multiple transactions to me. So can their loans to me have balloons, not have fixed rates, etc.? And the answer comes back to this. Is Angel buying these properties to live in? He can only have one primary residence. So it's possible that if he's buying a piece of property for his via seller financing for his primary residence, that seller, if it's the only loan they've ever done, they may be able to put a balloon in it. But on any other property that he's buying for any other purpose except being his primary residence, none of Dodd-Frank applies. Mm-hmm. So I want to be very clear. Dodd-Frank only applies to seller financing to people who are buying to live in the house as their primary residence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's a very common uh, thing that I hear is, oh my gosh, my private lenders make me nine loans a year. Well, yeah, but you're not a homeowner. So your private lender is not going to be in trouble for for not complying with Dodd-Frank because he doesn't have to because you are not a homeowner. Um, Correct. Uh, here's another one. Very com- boy, boy, I almost could have predicted these questions <laughs> coming, coming into because because we we have all asked them 
I mean, that's the bottom line. Uh, this is Dave from Cincinnati. He says, I have a few land contract and lease option tenant buyers uh, whose deals are expiring. I'm considering offering financing to the good paying tenants so they can purchase their residence. Can I use the three deals rule to allow me to finance a maximum of three deals per year per entity and not use a mortgage originator? So let's let's uh, let, let's let's talk about what it is Dave's asking here. A lot of people have multiple entities, right? I have I have LLC number one that owns my houses in Ohio. I have LLC number two that owns them in Kentucky. I have LLC number three that owns them in Butler County because each of them, ha- you know, each of those has a different state tax filing, right? Or a different county tax uh-huh. filing. And this idea has, has come up multiple times of, well, you know, when you get to three, just open a new LLC and do your next three out of that one. Is that going to work? No. It's not answer, short answer, no, it's not going to work. Because they've already anticipated that and they've gone out and said in some of the preambles of rules, we're going to go back and see is there common ownership among LLC 1, 2, and 3. And if there is, then we're going to treat it all as the same entity. Mm-hmm. If there's disparate ownership, such as you own 20% of LLC number 1, 80% of LLC number 2, and half of LLC number 3, and you have different owners in all of them, then yeah. Different other owners in all of them, then yeah, you can probably get away with nine deals that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I actually heard it suggested the other day that, that, that oh, we'll just get, you know, 100 different land trusts because they're thing. cheaper. <laughs> right? you, don't have to go, you don't have to go open an LLC. You can just get land trusts. But uh, anyone's going to look through that and say, I don't care that you had 10 trusts with 10 different trustees. The underlying beneficiary was all you. Exactly. You, you're exactly right, Vina. You went right to the underlying beneficiary. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. He had a little bit more to the question. Um, since you can, cannot... yeah, he had a couple of strategy points there. And the first thing is, it's a shame he didn't get some of this stuff done before January 10th. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say this: Don't think about getting cute and going back and backdating some of that stuff. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, the strategy is he could t- he could pick off the best three and recast the loans and call them brand new ones. And he already can def- he already has documented their ability to pay. He's got a nice track record for those top three that were the best payers. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's got irrefutable documentation about their ability to pay. Question from JC in Las Vegas. Uh, under Dodd-Frank, can I structure a loan with a stepped-up payment without increasing the rate or having a balloon after the first five years? The old... Growing equity loans that we used to do back in the late 80s when interest rates were 14%. That is an interesting question. Um, And I have to ask, can they afford that stepped-up payment on today's income? Because Mm -hmm. if you can't document that, the answer is no. Well, Jeff, we are down to that moment where we just have a few minutes left in the program. You you have some advice. What is it? I have a li- I have some advice on three things. Number 1, do not despair. That's the first thing. Number 2, continue to do deals. Number 3, get yourself better educated so that you know what you're doing and doing it right. 
And that is, folks, and you're going gonna, I'm, you're gonna, I'm to sound like a broken record, if you're not actively participating in your local RIA, you must, you need to. It is vital for your health and safety and well-being as an investor. You've got to be participating in your local RIA, and you've got to stay involved because your local RIA should be connected on a bigger scale, okay, and all the way up to national. Now, here's the good news. There are more than one organization and coalition coming together to begin to solve this Dodd-Frank conundrum because I think it's beginning to realize that the regulators in Washington, D.C. don't even have the ability to begin to come out and monitor the mom and pop, the average somewhat successful investor who might do four to five to ten seller finance deals a year, the mobile home park operator that might do 15 of them a year. Okay, they know they know that. So they're looking at redefining some of the terms that might open it up to give us as many as 25 transactions a year. They're also looking at some of the dollar levels involved. Okay, I threw that number $75,000 out there, not just casually, but for a reason, because we've surveyed a number of banks and we've discovered that a lot of banks can't even begin to cover the cost of originating loan for $75,000 or less. So there's a vacuum and we want to show that we can do it and do it right, do it fair, and fill that void. And that's another reason why we think we can advocate inside of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which has jurisdiction over enforcing Dodd-Frank, we think we can work with some of the definition changes there. The last piece of advice I'm going to give everybody is this. It's the golden rule. Treat your buyers, treat your borrowers just like you would want them to treat you. Do what you say you're going to do, when you say you're going to do it. Be honorable, be honest, do it in writing, do it in clear, easy-to-understand writing. Treat them like respectable human beings until they prove otherwise. And always act with dignity. Because it's the people that you treat right, the people that you have a good relationship with, those are, those are the ones that are the least likely to cause you a problem if they run into financial problems and they're not going to be the ones grabbing out their paperwork, running down to the local lawyer shop going, please look to see if there's some way we can sue them for the way they gave me money or extended me credit. And as always, we very much appreciate your advice, Jeff, and appreciate you being here. And if you will let me know uh, how folks can participate in these various coalitions and activities aimed at getting this thing made more reasonable for the small investor, I will certainly propagate it out to all of the real-life real estate listeners. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that they will, many of them will want to jump in and help out. So Thank you for being with us today, Jeff, and thank you to all the listeners who sent in such great questions. You've been listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.